Ahlan dear listener. I'm Michael Rakowitz, artist and director of Radio Silence, a broadcast about Iraq and its displacements presented by Mural Arts Philadelphia with major support from the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage and additional support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Hummingbird Foundation. Project collaborators include the Prometheus Radio Project, as well as many agencies and nonprofits that work on refugee and veteran issues and community media. Radio Silence is made in collaboration with the vibrant Iraqi community of Philadelphia and Iraq War veterans who are part of Warrior Writers, a Philadelphia-based community of military service members, artists, allies, and healers dedicated to creativity and wellness. Bajat al-Wahed, dubbed the Walter Cronkite of Iraq, and his wife, Haifa Abdul-Qadr, also a broadcaster, arrived as refugees in the city of brotherly love in 2009. The program became a portrait of Iraq in miniature as Bajat fell ill with a serious respiratory ailment after our first recording session, necessitating an emergency tracheostomy. The voice of Iraq lost its voice. Months later, Bajat Abdul-Wahed passed away. Our host has become a ghost, another casualty of the war. At his funeral, Bajat's friends spoke about how our project was even more important now. The show must go on, they insisted, to illustrate just how much of the country was slipping away, to resist cultural amnesia, to hold on to the best of what Iraq was, and what their new lives as Americans would be. And so we begin our seventh and final episode. We are together, one last time with Bajat and Haifa in their living room in northeast Philadelphia. Please, sit down and relax, dear listener. You must be hungry. Here's a plate. Go get some food from the kitchen table. Now is the time to fill up with Haifa's delicious dolma. My favorites are the stuffed onion skins and the eggplant, but this is like choosing a favorite child. The Haifa kebab, her own spin on Iraqi kebab, is hot off the skillet. Awafi, eat up. I can't count how many times I've said ashdidach to Haifa. The meals we've shared have concluded with this distinctly Iraqi saying, which means, bless your hands, or long live your hands. It is bestowed on a chef or a host who has prepared food and offered it to a guest. One says ashtidak to a man and ashtidach to a woman. In some parts of Iraq, it is customary for the host to send the guest home with a sprinkle of maywad or rose water on their head. So the aroma, which lasts as long as a day, reminds them of a delicious meal and delightful company. I don't need rose water to remember the warmth in Bajat and Haifa's living room. They gave new meaning to living room in the way they equated living with joy. What I wouldn't give to share one more meal with all of us together. But as long as you are here, and we are here, then he is still here. Still. Stillness. Another synonym for silence. But it also makes me think of still here, remaining, going on. 
In the living room, an amazing young woman has joined us. It is Muhammad's daughter. We will call her Hiba. Due to security concerns, Muhammad and his family have asked for this recording to be redacted. And so I wish, dear listener, that you could hear the story of Muhammad's daughter, a senior in high school who would go on to be valedictorian. I wish you could hear her childhood memories of Baghdad, which would become early adolescent memories of Damascus after the family fled the awfulness of the Iraq War and its aftermath. I wish you could hear Hiba conveying what it's like to watch two countries disappear, yet have parents who make sure that they are providing the best possible future for their children, even while fleeing. I wish you could hear her father and her recall the stories that he made up in the midst of the war to keep his children smiling and hoping. I wish you could hear her speaking about her aspirations, her passion for feminism and philosophy, and her devotion to activism and social justice. I wish you could hear her speaking about her admiration for Kurt Cobain, Audre Lorde, and Edward Said. I wish you could hear her parents get choked up and acknowledge that as long as their children are happy and given every chance to survive and flourish, then that's all that matters to them. I wish you could hear Hiba and her family. We go back to Haifa's kitchen for seconds. We make sandwiches with a kebab. On this visit, I brought from Chicago Iraqi samoon bread, shaped like a diamond and tasting a lot like traditional pita. The story goes that a long time ago, an Iraqi baker had traveled to France and seen croissant. He tried to recreate the shape by memory, and voila, his failure became a national culinary staple. As warrior writer Michael Callahan recalls, Samoon bread, which he fondly refers to as white gold, served as an aromatic background to his patrols in the Ghazaliya neighborhood of Baghdad. I remember the first time I had it, I was on a foot patrol. Uh, we were in the eastern part of uh, of Gazalia. And it was a slum of sorts, but in every in in every couple grouping of houses there were the I guess I guess the ovens that they make it the round ones. It was just the smell. It was just this intoxicating fresh smell that was just juxtaposed with walking through extra and rotting food and everything. And it was this deliciousness. I guess I, I guess it brought brought me back to being a kid and, you know, maybe somebody coming home with fresh bread or something on the weekend. But And so we'd, we were walking through this slum, and there was this older Iraqi woman who was baking. And then she just offered us each a piece. And, you know, we thanked her. But that's one of my first memories of being on patrol in Iraq, is eating a piece of Samoon, walking through this slum, and just surrounded by kids in this neighborhood feel. And, you know, all the nastiness that I had prepared for, it wasn't. Like, I was... It had brought a normalcy to everything, but then I realized. Then I was like, "Oh wait, I'm wearing, you know, a flak jacket. I have all this ammunition on me. I have a rifle." Yeah, so that was really the first first experience. Samoon would also function as a conduit through which Michael's unit could gather intel in Ghazalia. One of the first ways that we found out how to identify what were called military-aged males that were collaborating with, you know, anti-Iraqi forces was to look for three triangle blue dots 
on hand in between the thumb and the forefinger as a, and it would be a tattoo. Kid, if kids saw us, saw us on foot patrol, they would come up to us. They knew we'd give them money for Samoon, and then they'd walk around and hang out with us. And also we'd know, okay, well, if the kids are around, nothing bad's going to happen right now. Right? But then also, they eventually, once we had relationships established with them, they, they would tell us short little quips of, you know, people would say intel, but on the other hand, it would save our lives sometimes. Then it also helped us to push out people from neighborhoods that didn't belong there. Like, say, there were some of the people who were in Shiite militias and they were terrorizing the populace. They'd want to get them out. And more often it was the children and our, I guess, relationship with them of Samoon that facilitated that process more so than intel coming down from battalion or, or you know, um, or task force or division or anything. It would get, it was just those relationships and what's weird that we were talking about before is over food. You know, it's like food was the great equalizer. There. I never really thought about that. Yeah. As Michael explains, he currently works in real estate, helping to house homeless veterans in the Philadelphia and New Jersey area. Our conversation, which began with him recalling the smell of Samoon, ended with him discussing the smell of diesel and the way it brought the spaces of the war in Iraq into close proximity with urban war zones in the U.S. In housing homeless veterans now, um, you know, one of the realities of Section 8 housing that we use to rapidly rehouse homeless veterans, um, unfortunately, a lot of Section 8 housing is in neighborhoods that are in the, on the decline because rents are cheap and landlords are less stringent upon, you know, qualifications. And oftentimes homeless people have, you know, bad credit or, you know, a felony or some other disqualifying factor in their background. So I, long story short, I remember going up to, into uh, Kensington with, with, a cli- with a client, so a homeless veteran, that's what I mean by client, and getting out on the corner and, and a diesel truck drove by and all around is this urban desolation and, you know, there's tires on the corners and things like that. And uh, I felt that it was 10 years ago, it was a decade before, that I was just transfixed with, you know, it's, it looks like a war zone and here's this diesel smell. And I think, and, and for a moment I was in Iraq again, I was walking uh, on the streets of Baghdad. And that, and, and it, took, it, took, it took myself a second to, I guess, recollect myself and, you know, get my wits about me. And it was just so strange having that happen a decade later, I thought, even just personally, I thought I was beyond that, but it was just that smell of diesel. It was, so it was taking this gentleman to go see a to go see a house, which is you know, newly renovated, but the neighborhood around it had there, there's trash on the streets, and that and that's what Baghdad looks like. Like just as in North Philly, where all services have stopped or they're just inattentive, that also happened in Baghdad. The correlation between the two, I guess, was it was just striking. So it, it, it hits me so often now, the similarities between urban war zones that we have here that are part of the war on drugs or whatever, or the war on poverty. There's so many wars that we conduct. And the war in Iraq, in my experiences, and how those two things are much the same. And so it also gave me pause to think also, well, what am I doing now? Am I still a soldier in some type of other thing? just under a different professional title with a different license? Or am I not? And that all came, that, that whole thought process came from just smelling that diesel fuel and being in that space, so. 
Let's go now from the smell of diesel in Philadelphia to the sounds in the trees in Baghdad. Can you hear it? I think you've heard it already, dear listener, back in episode one. It's the sound of the white-cheeked bulbul, a bird native to Iraq. The first sound ever heard on Radio Baghdad was five minutes of a live bulbul singing. Since July 1st, 1936, the morning broadcast begins with the bulbul's song, and the station manager used to take a monthly stipend to feed the bird. When the first bulbul died, King Faisal II gifted the radio station a mechanical version he bought in London. Iraqis refer to the bulbul as the radio's poet. For the Radio Silence live event, performed on Independence Mall in Philadelphia on July 30th, 2017, I wanted to have an Iraqi bulbul open the broadcast. Earlier that year, I visited Amman, Jordan, where an Iraqi man offered to sell me his pair of bulbuls, one female, one male. However, once I researched arrangements to import the birds to the U.S., I was informed by the Department of Fish and Wildlife of the likelihood that the birds would be destroyed upon arrival for a host of absurd bureaucratic reasons that are horribly poetic, as birds from Iraq are met with the same fate as humans trying to gain entry to the U.S. While in Amman, I had the pleasure of meeting Ronak, Bajad and Haifa's daughter, who went on to become a television announcer, first in Iraq and now at ANB, Arabic News Broadcast, a station that is run from Lebanon. I interviewed her after she cooked and served an incredible lunch, which was identical to and as delicious as the meals her mother has cooked for me in Philadelphia. I asked her what influenced her to become a broadcaster. She said, my father encouraged me. He was a broadcaster at Iraqi radio and TV. He gave me a lot of encouragement to become a broadcaster. I graduated from Baghdad University in administration and economics. I didn't have anything to do with media. But because of my father's love for this field, I wanted to be a broadcaster, and I loved it. He taught me Arabic language. My mother was a broadcaster as well, and my aunt. Almost all my family works in media. My daughter, God willing, will become a broadcaster in the future. Ronak's daughter Aya was sitting at the table with us. As I looked over at her, I realized that she had locked eyes with her mother the way I do with mine when we speak about Iraq and about our wish to see our love for that culture continue in subsequent generations, for the transmission to go uninterrupted, for it to survive, to still be there, to remain. Next, here's Nashwa Altan with the weather. Uh, my name is uh, Nashwa Altan. I'm from Baghdad. 
I wish my country to be safe, uh, calm, calm. I hope uh, the weather to be cool and uh, I, all the, the people in my country to be happy. I hope you have electricity to hear this weather report and I hope everyone have good like surface in my country and find job and uh, happy to, to be successful in this life like my country. Thank you, Nashwa. And now it's time for the Mutanabi Street Moment. Named after the 10th century classical Iraqi poet, Al-Mutanabi Street is filled with bookstores and outdoor bookstalls. It has often been referred to as the heart and soul of the Baghdad literary and intellectual community. On March 5th, 2007, a car bomb exploded there and killed 26 people, leaving the area littered and unsafe for shoppers and destroying many businesses. To revive and rescue Al-Mutanabi Street, to breathe life back into lungs and give voice to the street, we welcome two poets to the microphone. First, we hear from Leila Husseini, who was born in Baghdad in 1940, lived in Mosul as a child, and returned to Baghdad in 1958 at the time of her marriage. She is the mother of four sons and two daughters. One son died as a baby, and her three other sons died as men due to the miserable sectarian conflicts in Iraq. She turned to poetry after losing her husband and her sons. Layla came as a refugee to Philadelphia in 2013, where she lives with her daughter Fadia and her family. The attempt at translating a poem from the language in which it was written into another can be considered, in some cases, an attempted murder of the poem. In order to retain the poem's integrity, I will summarize the poem's content. But for this moment, dear listener, abandon language barriers in all borders and hear the Iraq that survives in this survivor's words and utterance. Layla. Over to you. عندي قصيدة بغداد بغداد هي حبيبتنا بغداد هي رمز حضارتنا بغداد حبيبتي سأبكيك يا بغداد وألبس ثوب الحزن سألبس السواد the poem's title is Baghdad. Baghdad, our love. Baghdad, the symbol of our civilization. Baghdad, my love. I'll cry for you, Baghdad, and wear the morning dress. I'll wear black. The cradle of civilizations, history and glory. The land of ancestors, fathers and grandchildren. They wounded you, and your wound is bleeding, and they even tore your bandage. They wounded you, and your wound is bleeding, and they even tore your bandage. Martyrs are falling, flowers are plucked, childhood is nipped in the bud, and conscience is dying. An orphan child, an old man is dying with no medicine, and people sleep in the open. Until when, O oh God, this test? Come back, for God's sake, come back, Baghdad. When will the shackles be broken? And when will the borders be open? And when will every house have a wedding? And when will the sun rise? And when in churches the bells will be rung and the candles will be lit? 
And when will the sound of the Adhan be raised? The sound of Allahu Akbar everywhere. Come back, my love, as you were, Baghdad. Thank you, Layla. Our next poet, Michael Miller, is a veteran of 15 years, eight in the Marine Corps and seven in the Army. He is a spoken word artist who works often with warrior writers. He lives in Chester, Pennsylvania, and is the owner and operator of Open Mike's Cafe. This is called uh, the war, the real-time war reality show. So it goes. <clears throat> they say that the meek shall inherit the earth, but I'm here today to tell that the wicked gets it first. Bombs, bullets, and bad guys, newspapers, newscasts, or political lies right now. War is the biggest reality show on TV. But you don't have to take my word for it. I mean, why believe me when you can see it for yourself? So many countries out there needing Americanized help, and our biggest and bravest are literally dying to give it. Just look at all the graveyards out there full of patriotic spirits and ask the children crying out for fallen fathers and mothers, but only you and your living room will ever get the chance to hear it. In a world seems to be such a lonely place for a little boy who has the I miss my daddy blues. His mother's eyes swollen with tears every time he tries on his daddy's boots, but she doesn't understand that he just wants to feel close to him again. So every day he goes to school and tell teachers, preachers, family and friends, when I grow up, I want to be just like him. So when he turns 18, off he goes, another contestant for this fucked up reality show. And I heard it said to honor thy father and mother, but that's pretty hard to do when a little girl is being raised by her father and brother. Thanks to an improvised explosive device, mommy's never coming home. And you may say it's not that bad. She's not really alone because she has the two others, but nothing can comfort a little girl's tears like the arms of her mother. So when she has questions, she turns to dysfunctional girlfriends, menstruation, body changes, abusive boyfriends. A lifetime of changes coming around the bend because daddy can't teach her what he doesn't understand or know. Here's your next contestant for this fucked up reality show. You see, children ask the hardest questions when they don't understand. But it's another moment for you to capture out there in TV land. We give a lot to this country, but does the tears of our children mean that we pay too much? Newspapers, newscasters, political minds out of touch. Hell, they even pay contractors about a hundred grand to be in a war zone more than the members of the armed forces. And it's a disservice when a singer dies and get more airtime than one of us, but I guess if it doesn't make dollars, it'll never make sense. Lights, camera, action, let this bullshit commence. I now return you to your scheduled programming. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Our time together is drawing to a close, dear listener. When I consider the unflinching reality in Sumud, or steadfastness, of Leila Husseini's and Michael Miller's poems, I realize that surviving, that remaining, also means making space for absences, losses, and silences to be heard. We've done that. Radio Silence was meant to be 10 episodes long. We are concluding at episode 7. So many voices were silenced along the way. There is no happy ending here. This is not an American story. It's an Iraqi one.
On the day after Samir, Mohammed, and other Iraqis requested the redaction of their recordings for radio silence, I received an excited phone call from a man named Jose Fernandez, the owner of Blue Mina Aviaries in Miami, Florida. He wanted to let me know that a baby bulbul had just been born from two adult bulbuls that were originally from Iraq. He wanted me to have it for the radio silence performance in July. I was elated. He told me it would take about six weeks for the parents to teach its hatchling to fly and to sing. I thought of Bajat and Haifa teaching Ronak how to read the news on television. I then thought of Ronak teaching her daughter Aya to do the same. A transmission uninterrupted. Still here. In a project marked by loss, the bulbul arrived as a gift, a new life. He appeared on stage during the Radio Silence live performance, and the audience could hear him singing at the beginning of our show, just as the original bulbul was heard from the very beginning of Radio Baghdad's broadcast over 80 years ago. Mahaned al-Obaidi, an Iraqi refugee living in Philadelphia, built the bulbul a traditional spacious cage, just as they do in Iraq. After the performance, a local Iraqi family adopted the bird. They named him Bajat. Still here. He's still here. Iraq is still here. But you must know, dear listener, that for the Iraqis, the war is still there. Like new life growing from old life, Iraq is still here, even if it's elsewhere. It's in my mother's house and in her heart in New York. It's in Amman in Ronak's voice, molded by her father. It's in the smell of Iraqi baharat spices emanating from Amasi, Philadelphia's best and only Iraqi restaurant. It's in Haifa. It's in Mohammed. It's in Samir. It's in Hiba. It's in the date palms in California, first planted from Iraqi seed in the early 20th century. It's in the heart and the words of the former combat veterans that make up warrior writers, who were courageous enough to ask themselves not how did the war change them, but rather how Iraq changed them. Iraq is in London, Berlin, Toronto, San Diego. Iraq is here, in Philadelphia, and here it remains. It was there, on Independence Mall, in front of Independence Hall, on July 30th, 2017, during the Radio Silence performance. The Iraqi architect, Mayada, now living in Philadelphia, designed the stage on which we performed, a reconstruction of the ziggurat of Ur, allowing an Iraqi monument to stand as a ghost or apparition interrupting an American one. And it's in you too, dear listener. As long as you are here, and you hear, Iraq is still here. The transmission will not be interrupted. Well, Bajat, we're finished. Do you have anything you'd like to say to Philadelphia? 
Perfect words to end with. Ahlan wa sahlan. We say goodbye by saying hello. May you arrive as part of the family and tread an easy path. And so, dear listener, these are our parting words until the next time. May they be on your lips to welcome those desperately searching for a new home while fleeing one that's disappeared. Radio Silence is curated by Elizabeth Thomas. Special thanks to our project manager, Abigail Satinsky, to our sound engineer and editor, Nate Sandberg, to Warrior Writers and their director, Lovella Kalika, to all our Iraqi participants and the resettlement agencies that connected us to them, and to Jane Golden and everyone at Mural Arts. Our deepest gratitude and love to Bajat Abdel-Wahed and his wife, Haifa Ibrahim Abdel-Kadr. Original music for Radio Silence is composed by Hannah Khouri and performed with the Radio Silence Ensemble. Thank you for joining us. For Radio Silence, I'm Michael Rakowitz, and this was Iraq. <laughs>